following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. RevivalNow.Church Revival in Woodbridge RevivalNow.Church Revival in Woodbridge RevivalNow.Church
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. Do we need a revival in the church in America? Now, most that I speak with quickly answer the question, yes, we need a revival in America. The difficulty with that answer is that a revival presupposes that there is backsliding and sin in the church. Many of you giving me feedback have felt insulted by the way I've spoken to you about the gospel of Jesus. You felt that I was critical, that I was judgmental, that I was negative, that I was a doomsayer. I was sitting one afternoon in the office, New York City, Times Square, with Pastor David Wilkerson. He was my pastor. And I could tell that day that Pastor Dave was, he was kind of down, a bit discouraged. And he said to me, Ray, I'm so tired of these letters constantly coming from my newsletter that tell me that I am negative, that I'm judgmental. I sympathized with him. I didn't understand, frankly, what he was really saying. I do today, after having done this radio broadcast and having preached in Washington now for a number of years. It seems that people want to come close to Jesus without talking about their sin, without talking about the issues that block the presence of God from their lives. And so they want to remain comfortable in their little church circle and not talk about their sin. But see, it's impossible for revival to come if there is not a dramatic return to full obedience to God. But many of you have said to me, Pastor, I don't know of any sin in my life. There's an unconsciousness of what God is asking for in terms of righteousness in our lives. So today we live in a culture with abortion, gambling, alcohol abuse and consumption, public cursing and swearing, violent crime, corruption in the justice system, child abduction, sex trafficking, slavery, abuse toward women and children, drug and tobacco abuse and use. The American society at large has become sexually immoral. Financial scandals are being exposed at the highest levels of our government, in corporations, in Hollywood. And yet somehow, as one pastor in Baltimore said just recently, the problem is we don't have enough police in Baltimore. That's why the crime rate's so high. Well, I beg to differ with that pastor. 
The problem is not the lack of police. The problem is the lack of Christian people who know how to be salt in a culture and transform it by the power of the blood of Jesus into righteousness so that the jails are emptied and the judges and the magistrates have no one coming before them and the police have no work to do because of the transforming power of the blood of Jesus. You say, well, pastor, you're just being... Pollyanna. Well, this has happened in other nations. It happened in Wales. The bars closed. Everything of criminal nature stopped. People turned to Jesus. They were converted in the mighty Welsh revival. The same has happened in other revivals in the past, but it has been many years since there's been a revival in America. So when we look at the issue, I believe God holds the pastor responsible to exercise church discipline, to protect God's people from slander, to deal with domestic violence, to deal with sexual abuse, to deal with marital unfaithfulness, to no longer allow sinners to continue fellowshipping in the church, but instead to call those sinners to total repentance. Well, this is not very popular because the belief is everyone will leave. But it's not just the fault of pastors. Until Christians, and you and me, start holding the church in high regard by keeping sin out of it through godly preaching and church discipline, by putting the church and the salvation of the lost above bad weather and inconvenient timing and TV shows and the Orioles and the Steelers hanging out with friends, shopping. Until we're willing to make Jesus first and the church first, the society at large will not hold the church in high regard. So when I look at the death rate in Baltimore, when I look at the drug overbuses in Washington, D.C., when I look at the police losing the confidence of the people, when I look at the corrupt mayor of Baltimore, the murder rate, the carjacking, when I recognize that alcohol use is the highest in Washington, D.C., of any city in America, when I look at the casino at the National Harbor, where are the Christians? They're at the casino gambling. The Christians are there having party time. They don't see gambling as something thuggish and evil, which it is. We in the church have become so tolerant of evil. And I'm wondering, what's going to happen when Americans at large begin to wake up and say, enough? What's going to happen when all the pedophiles are exposed, when the sex trafficking is exposed? 
when the abortion issue is finally brought to the fore and we begin to see that Planned Parenthood is not Planned Parenthood, it is baby murder. Until we begin to see that Planned Parenthood serves no useful purpose except eugenics as it was designed to do, killing generations of black children. Planned Parenthood is specifically zeroed in on destroying black babies and Hispanic babies. Just look at the numbers that are murdered. Until we begin to understand the evil, how long will America put up with this? I believe the day is coming when America is going to wake up and say, we've had it. And there's going to be all kinds of actions at a civil level and a criminal level to stop the wickedness that's going on in America. Where's the church going to be in all of that? Well, right now, the church is held in such low regard because the people in the church are doing the same things that everybody else is doing, going the same places, spending their money the same way, having the same goals, the same objectives. What's going to happen when the society begins to say, this has to change. We've had it. There must be a change in our culture. Are they going to turn to the church for the answer? No. Because the church and the pulpits of America are a key part of the problem. So, when I speak about revival, I am presupposing that there is sin in the church. And a revival then is a return to obedience to God. So how do Christians return to obedience to God? By repenting. But if you don't know of any sin, you'll say, I, hey, pastor, I'm cool. I don't have anything I need to repent of. I just want more of Jesus. Well, the way you get more of Jesus is you begin to pray and cry out and ask God to show you the true condition of your heart. Christian men will sit down and they'll spend hours watching the television, watching football, watching some other sport, They'll sit for hours and salve their conscience with the History Channel or some other program that they say, Pastor, there's nothing wrong with this. Well, yes, there is. There's something very wrong with it because it turns your mind to mush. It causes you to lose sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. It steals your time from God that should be given to prayer and Scripture reading. It steals your time to pray with your wife, to sing hymns of praise and worship before Almighty God. It steals from you the very heart of your life. And then you say, Pastor, I have no sin. What are you talking about? Well, turn your television off, begin to search after God, and ask Him to expose your heart. But when I say things like this, well, Pastor, you're just being negative. In fact, you're even, you're badgering us, Pastor. 
let us alone. We want to be comfortable and we want to search after God in our own way and in our own time. Now just spoon out some wonderful nuggets of truth. Inspire us, pastor, with some stories. Inspire us, pastor. Cause us to laugh and be happy. And sleep your way to hell. So I struggle with this question. How do I come and speak to you in a way that will turn your heart toward Jesus, but not talk about sin? and not talk about repentance. Well, what does it mean to repent? Well, the first stage of revival is when a preacher confronts the congregation with the sins that are present in it. That's why I come to this radio broadcast, exposing sin, calling you to repent, telling you what you need to do in order to be clean before God. Now, this stage is not supposed to last a long time, but it lasts for me on this radio station year after year because there's such hardness of heart. It reminds me of when I was in college. The first two years of my college experience on a, on a Christian campus in Washington, D.C., on this campus, the pre-med guys were premier. The science guys were premier. The theology students were looked down on. They were considered insignificant. And so in the social standing on campus, the ones who were voted into office in the frat, in the student association. They were all the science guys. They were all the pre-med boys. For two years on campus, if you tried to speak about the Lord, you were scorned. If you tried to start a conversation in the cafeteria or at an event, you tried to start a conversation about what you were experiencing in your walk with Jesus you were considered oddball, strange. If you asked someone if you could pray with them, they looked at you like you had lost your mind. What do you mean, pray? I pray every morning. I don't need to pray with you. There was a total lack, and so some of us would meet, and we would talk about this condition on campus, and we would pray about it, and a professor that I had, his name was M.K. Eckenroth. Pastor Eckenroth had come out of, he was an old man, he'd come out of revivals of the past where he would set up a tent in a, in a town in the country, a tent that would seat 5,000 people and it would be jammed with people and people would be streaming forward with tears flowing down their face, repenting of their sin. And he would, in that town, establish a church based on what happened in that tent meeting. 
He would appoint elders. It sounded like New Testament times. And it used to say to me, Ray, the day will come again in America when revival will come. But right now, everything is so hard and so dry, so cold, so indifferent. Don't let that discourage you. Well, it wasn't long after that that a group of these very cynical, hard-edged young men invited me to their dorm room. And when I got there, I discovered the room was jammed. And these young men said to me, Ray, we'd like to read the scripture and we'd like to pray. We're not sure how to do that. Would you help us? And we began one of the most transforming experiences of my life as these men who asked me not to talk about it outside of that room on campus as they began to pray and read chapter after chapter of scripture. One would read a chapter and then some someone else would pick up and read a chapter. And soon there were tears and there was confession of sin. Drugs were just beginning to come on the scene and some of them were dealing in codeine and and other drugs found in things like cough syrup. That event was a very encouraging event to me. And then I remember when the Jesus movement started. And wow, suddenly everybody wanted to talk about Jesus. And everybody wanted to get rid of their sin and get clean with God. And people were saying, I will totally sell out to Jesus. I want to go to heaven. And there was a totally different atmosphere on college campuses. So what I'm saying to you is, I remember the cold-hearted, indifferent time when everybody was self-righteous and religious but didn't really care about Jesus. That's what we're in right now in America. But I know that's going to change. And so people accuse me of being judgmental. They accuse me of being negative. They accuse me of badgering them with the truth of the gospel of Jesus. But I know what comes next. And that's the power of Jesus as he begins to move in the hearts of men and women to turn from their selfish, self-centered, wicked ways to drop their judgments and their accusations and begin to get serious with Jesus. Christians in America are a mile wide and an inch deep. There is such depth we need to go to in Jesus Christ. So this first stage of revival we're in right now, where I come and I confront you with sin, I confront when I preach with the darkness that I see and people say, oh, come on, pastor, I'm not walking in sin. And besides, I'm saved. I'm saved in the midst of my sin. Jesus imputes righteousness to me. He covers me. I'm okay. No, you're not. It's a lie. 
But a lot of you don't want to hear that. You want to walk in your sin and believe that you're saved. Do you understand this is the precondition for revival? This hardness of heart, this self-centeredness, this selfishness is the sign that God is about to bring either judgment or revival on a nation. And I've been praying, O God, send judgment unto repentance, not judgment unto destruction. I love America. I love you who listen to this radio broadcast. But there has to be a change. There has to be a breaking out. I mean, I invite you to call. No one calls. Why? Well, professionals tell me, right, no one's going to call when you just skin them alive. Why would anyone call? Well, that's a sign of pre-revival resistance and sin that's a sign that god is about to bring judgment on your life or he is about to bring revival into your heart so i come faithfully exposing sin calling you to repent talking to you about how to repent this shouldn't have to last very long but it's lasted for me for years in Washington, D.C. It's time to break away from sin with the intention to never sin again. A set determination in your heart that you will obey every word of God, that you will turn aside from your television. You will turn aside from the foolishness of this age and this day. You will stop wasting your money on foolish things. You will begin to focus on caring for the poor. You'll begin to focus on Jesus, the Lord and Savior of your heart and your life, and you'll begin to search after him. You see, when Christians are thus beginning to be revived, they are filled with the Spirit of God. And then that allows me to change what I'm teaching. And I can begin to talk about, okay, what do you have to do to reach your neighbor, your brother, your sister? I can begin to talk about how to pray for the lost, how to talk to them. Some of you... You don't know how to talk to somebody about their sin because you don't want to confront them. You don't want to make them mad. You want to please them. You cannot please people and win them to Jesus. Impossible. I need to have time to help identify how God is calling you, what gifts he's calling you to exercise for the lost we need to be mobilized into small mission groups, reaching out into our community, using our networks, friends, neighbors, people from the gym, classmates, co-workers, teachers, students, bringing other people to the revival meetings. Now, at this point, revival meetings take on a very explicit evangelistic nature because many of the people who will come are lost sinners. See, the lost sinners are not going to come to a revival meeting until the church has been revived. And if the church maintains its innocence 
and refuses to deal with the reality of their sin and refuses to deal with the reality of the condition of their church without being defensive about their church, there's not much hope of revival happening in that church. And it becomes very political. And then things are destroyed. See, we need the gospel to be preached to the worldly sinners so that they too will come and confess their sin and repent and believe in Jesus. Christians need to know how to help souls that are awakened, that are anxious about their salvation. Can you identify the difficulties that prevent a person from being immediately converted? Do you know how to pray for a lost person? Can you cry out to God for mercy and see God answer your prayer? Revival is not supposed to be an incidental thing that happens in the church. Revival is the normal, natural life of the church. Read Acts Revival was continuous, daily. Men and women were being added to the church such as should be saved. This is normal church life according to Scripture. The church should be growing daily, continuously. Only then can the church begin to take up an aggressive stand in the society with a war on sin. Now, individuals in the church who have the right talents and the right network can effectively begin to confront the corruption in the educational system, in the culture. We need to eliminate the casino in Washington, D.C. It is a pit from hell. It corrupts our city. It causes thuggishness. We need to criminalize abortion. We need to stop the CIA from flooding this nation with cocaine and other drugs. Marijuana should not be legal. Alcohol, tobacco. We need to turn people from using these substances. Rape, child abuse, domestic violence. The church needs to address these issues. I was sitting one morning in a church in Washington, D.C. called Church of the Savior. Only about 130 people were present. The pastor, Gordon Cosby, a dear friend of mine, was speaking that Sunday morning, and he made this stunning announcement. The Church of the Savior is going to close Junior Village. Now, You don't know about Junior Village, probably, unless you're my age. Junior Village was the place where foster children were warehoused. And I used to go down during college years every Saturday to Junior Village, and I would just hold and touch and love children. They were so hungry, babies who had lain in their cribs, just needed to be held and patted on the back and cooed to. Their development was being slowed because they didn't have enough human interaction. 
And Gordon Cosby said, we're going to close this. And we're going to change the city. And they're going to go to a real foster care system, placing these children in private homes. The whole congregation gasped. And then he said, now all of you who would like to join me in a mission group to begin the process of closing Junior Village, would you meet me right after the service? And we'll set up a meeting time and we're going to begin to talk and pray together about closing this wicked place in our city. Well, that's what happened. It took them several years. But finally, they were able to access the power structure of Washington. And Junior Village was closed. I was absolutely astonished. It was the church at work. And then they began to be very concerned about the need for a place for homeless men and for families, for women with children who were alone. And so he came up with the idea of buying a high-rise. And he got Paul Rouse, the one who built Columbia, Maryland. And together they began to work on a plan to provide affordable housing and ownership in Washington, D.C., they bought several high-rise apartment buildings and began the renovation process. And a family would have to participate in the rebuilding of their apartment, of their condo. It was an exciting program. Today, that program has been taken over completely by a, an NGO, a nonprofit. It's no longer associated with the church and it's no longer centered in the message of Jesus Christ. And its effectiveness has been completely dulled. You see what I'm saying? These kinds of activities can go on among a people who are totally sold out to follow Jesus Christ. Now, my goal is to come and speak a very straight word of God to you, to ask you to please turn to Jesus Christ and repent of your sin, to quit all sin forever, to devote your life to the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. This is not something ephemeral. This is something real, practical, where the rubber hits the road. This is where Christians finally pull out of the world and say, okay, let's come together and say, what can we do together to make a change in this city and lift up Jesus Christ? One local pro-life evangelist tried to stop the building of a new Planned Parenthood in a disadvantaged, poor, mostly black community in northwest D.C. from being built. This was recently. He couldn't find any other Christians in his church to join the fight with him, so he tried to get the community aroused. 
He went outside an elementary school close to where the new Planned Parenthood was slated to be built. He held up signs on public property urging the children to talk to their parents about Planned Parenthood and to ask the school to join in opposition. So what happened? The school became so angry they sued him. Now the charges will be dropped because he wasn't breaking any law. However, he did not succeed, and Planned Parenthood is now there, right next to the elementary school, and they're in the process of killing thousands of babies, mostly black babies. How would this have been different if a whole church had taken a serious stand on this building of a new Planned Parenthood facility? Or what if just ten people had taken the position we're going to fight against this and we're going to do everything we can. We're going to write letters to the local politicians. We're going to canvass the community with a petition. We're going to take strong action. But that didn't happen. Only one person cared enough to try to do anything about it. <laughs> see, I'm very, very concerned because I see the church casual, indifferent. If anyone comes speaking an honest, straight word of God, they're criticized and judged. Many of you who listen to this radio broadcast listen and then walk away. You don't get involved. I want to share some scriptures with you today. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, I begin with verse 37. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Can I be very practical? I believe at the end of the age... The angels are going to collect all the televisions, make a huge heaping pile of them. They're going to collect everything that has caused evil for burning. And they're going to collect all of those people who participate in the evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is Jesus. Now, please, I spoke yesterday with you about four functions of Jesus. One, he was the creator God in Genesis 1.1. He spoke the world into existence. Colossians 1 tells us that everything that has been created was created by and for Jesus Christ. 
Then at Mount Sinai, we find Jesus, the lawgiver. And then we find Jesus, born in Bethlehem. He came as the Redeemer. His function is now the Redeemer. But as I just shared with you in this parable, the time is going to come when Jesus will change his function from Redeemer to Judge. Matthew 13, verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. May I change that parable just a bit? A merchant was looking for fine pearls. He could not find any that were of sufficient value that he would sell everything and buy it. That's how many of you relate to the church. It is not of sufficient value for you to sell everything and commit your time and energy and money to the building of the kingdom of God because you don't see any value in it. You think everything is fine. You can show up on church on a Saturday or Sunday. You can listen to the music. You can listen to the smooth words of the pastor flow over you. You can be inspired. You can laugh a little at his jokes. You can, you can be inspired a little bit by his stories. You can be admonished a little bit about how you're supposed to live and love everybody and, and Jesus loves you unconditionally and, and everything is fine and you're let off the hook. And you go home and then you live the rest of the week being concerned about your own life. Why? Because you didn't see enough value in the church to sacrifice your time and your energy and your money to make any purchase of a beautiful pearl. But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who finds it as a pearl of great price. And he went away and he sold everything he had so that he could buy the kingdom of God. Then in verse 47, once again the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. And then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. Now notice, Jesus is transferring from the Redeemer to the Judge. He says, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, this is going to literally happen to you as you are in your body. It is real. 
and you are going to be separated out the wicked from the righteous. The righteous, it's dikasune, it just means the innocent. Those who are not walking with the world, the flesh, or the devil. Those who are not walking in any known rebellion or sin. If you're walking in any known rebellion or sin, this parable is saying that the day is coming when you will be separated out from those who are walking clean before God and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth on your part as you are bound hand and foot and cast into the fire of hell. That's terrifying to me. That alone would be sufficient reason to say, wait a minute, I'd better wake up. I'd better begin to look at what this is all about. And if you look at Matthew, the 14th chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew, the 24th chapter, verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then we have this very troublesome parable that Jesus gives us when he becomes the judge. It's the parable of the ten virgins. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps. In other words, they had religion. They attended church. They didn't take any oil with them. In other words, there was no deep searching after Jesus. There was no deep repentance in their hearts. There was no familiarity between them and Jesus. So they all kind of got drowsy and they even all fell asleep. Then the midnight cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Well, the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Some of your oil, our, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil, buy some for yourselves. What Jesus is saying is it's going to cost you time, energy, and money to enter into the kingdom of God. It's going to take time, energy, and money. You're going to have to drop your defensiveness. You're going to have to begin to earnestly seek after Jesus. I got a call from, or a text from one dear sister who said, I'm reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in the month of January. I've now talked to several people who are doing this. Why? It takes about three hours of reading a day to read from Genesis to Revelation in one month. I've done it time after time after time. Why would you give that kind of time? That's going to take your television time. That's going to take your football time. That's going to take your play time. 
Why would you do it? Because you want oil in your lamp and you want the extra oil provided so that you can fill your lamp again. So it says the virgins who were ready went in with the bridegroom to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others came also. Sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. I don't know you. Well, today everybody thinks Jesus knows them. Why did they think that? Because we have a little bit of theological understanding and a little bit of a sentimental feeling. But by and large, most of you listening to this broadcast do not really know Jesus. Not at the level he's calling you to know him. We need revival. Revival presupposes sin in the church sin in our hearts so somewhere we have to finally begin to deal with the brokenness of our heart with the sin that's in our life not because we need to be condemned but because jesus loves us enough to begin to point out as he did in the letters to the churches in revelation look this is the true condition of your heart you have left your first love repent or i will remove your lampstand see how sober this is sir sir they said open the door for us but he replied i tell you the truth i don't know you in other words you didn't spend any time with me you didn't serve me. You served yourself. You didn't search after me. You served yourself. We need revival. Brothers, sisters, we need revival because there is sin in the church and the culture is dying. The abortion, the gambling, the alcohol, the public cursing and swearing, the violent crime, the corruption in the justice system, the, the sex trafficking, the slavery, the abuse toward women and children. We live in a wicked nation. And unless the church repents, the church will have no ability to help lead America to the foot of the cross see this is not about just you and me this is about america this is about washington dc this is about searching earnestly after jesus and going wherever you have to go to deal with the sin of the nation now we're out of time i have two minutes left if you want revival would you go to revivalnow.church and note it that the next revival meeting at the prayer chapel will be held at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia on Monday evening. Would you come? Would you be present? Will you pay the price? Will you drive from wherever you have to drive to come and sit and listen to a straight gospel word that church is located at 14851 
Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. I want you to know today without any question, Jesus right now is our Redeemer. He loves us. His mercy is extended to us. His grace is extended to us. But soon he will be the judge. God bless you. You've been listening to Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can donate online or you can write to me. The information is all on the webpage. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.